second half of chapter 33 of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Blow. Chapter 33. Incursion of Modernized Mammals and Evolution of Carnivores. Felidae. The cats are in many ways the most highly specialized of carnivores, chiefly in their dentition, for the carnassial here reaches the height of perfection as a shearing tooth. The molars, on the contrary, are almost entirely lacking. Another specialization lies in the retractile claws, characteristic of all felidae except the cursorial hunting leopard, or cheetah, Cynelurus, which, as its name dog-cat implies, shows a number of dog-like convergences in limbs and feet. The working of the retractile claws is as follows. The ungual or claw-bearing phalanx is capable of a wide vertical range of movement and has attached to its upper side an elastic ligament which would keep the claw permanently raised were it not for an antagonistic muscle and tendon attached to the lower side. The contraction of this muscle pulls the ungual downward, thus protruding the claw and at the same time stretching the elastic ligament. Relax the muscle and the elasticity of the ligament again withdraws the claw. This permits the cat to move silently in stalking its prey and at the same time provides prehensile organs of high perfection for securing it. Distribution Cats are today worldwide in their distribution with the exception of Madagascar and Australia. The Old World producing the most notable living species such as the lion, Felis leo, the tiger, Felis tigris, the leopard, Felis pardus, the ounce or snow leopard, Felis uncia, and others including the supposed ancestor of our domestic cat, the caffre or Egyptian cat, Felis caffra. In the New World, the most noteworthy are the puma, Felis concolor, the jaguar, Felis onca, and the lynxes and caracals. Fossil cats. But it is the fossil felines which are in many ways of the greatest interest, for they include not only the ancestors of the modern forms, but the now extinct saber-tooths, creatures whose endowment of effective weapons put them in the very forefront of the carnivorous hordes as efficient beasts of prey. Thus the felidae are divisible into two phyla or subfamilies. The felini or biting cats, the race to which all existing felines belong, and the macerodontini or saber-tooths, the stabbing cats whose line has ceased to exist. They show many points of contrast in body, limbs and tail, but especially in skull, jaws and dentition, and, as we shall see, these distinctions arose in the course of evolution from a single, as yet unknown stem through adaptation to contrasting types of prey, for the saber-tooths were relatively slow of foot and their rise, culmination and decline is so intimately associated with that of the slow-moving, thick-skinned ungulates, elephants, rhinos, swine, the so-called pachyderms of Cuvier, that the conclusion that we have here, the proper association of predatory animals and their usual victims, is irresistible. On the other hand, the swift-footed biting cats are in like manner associated with the thin-skinned cursorial ungulates, as they are today and the inference is that they in their turn were adapted to such a source of food. The contrasting anatomical features are felines have limbs less robust, more cursorial, toes tending to reduce, while macrodonts have limbs shortening, more robust, digits never fewer than five. 
In the felony, the tail was long. In the saber-tooths, it became progressively shortened, especially in the final form, smilodon. Dentition. In the felines or biting cats, the carnassial is relatively smaller, and the premolars in front of it are less reduced than in the saber-tooths. But it is in the development of the canine that the most marked distinction is seen, for while in the felinae, the upper and lower tusks are more nearly equivalent in size and power, in the macrodonts, the lower ones are reduced to a size not much greater than that of the incisors. The upper canines, on the contrary, have become thin, curved daggers of relatively enormous length, showing the same fine serrations on their cutting edges that we saw in the teeth of the carnivorous dinosaurs. It is these great sable-like tusks which gave the popular name to the group. Skull There is a marked difference in the form of the skull in the two phyla, especially when seen in profile and the principal purpose of this modification in the saber-tooths is to obtain greater leverage and so render more effective the downward stabbing stroke of the tusks. A glance at the diagram of the skulls of Felis tigris and Smilodon drawn to the same scale will render this clear. The principal distinction lies in the rear of the skull or occiput and in the arch of the face. In Felis, the cranial arch is highest just behind the orbits and diminishes both toward the front and toward the rear so that the occiput is comparatively low. In Smilodon, on the other hand, the rear of the skull is highest and the face slopes downward and forward, the sabers continuing the line of the curve. The condyle for the articulation with the neck is on a level with the tooth line in Felis, and the mastoid process behind the ear openings are inconspicuous. In Smilodon, on the other hand, the condyles are high and the mastoid processes extend far below them, these processes are for the insertion of the sternomastoid and clidomastoid muscles, whose combined function is to depress the skull. Their value in the saber-tooth is at once apparent, as they are the muscles which produce the downward stroke of the head, by which, with terrible efficiency, the tusks are driven into the victim. A well-rounded condyle in Smilodon points to great freedom of movement in the vertical plane. The muscles of the dorsal side of the neck, which raise the head, were alike powerful in both forms. Jaw. There is a marked distinction in the lower jaws of the saber-tooths as compared with the biting cats, more marked in some respects in the earlier types such as Hoplophonius than in Smilodon. For here the jaw is lighter and has less powerful muscles, as the diminished coronoid process and other muscle insertions show. The jaw was capable of being opened more widely in the saber-tooth although the yawn of a modern tiger is a memorable sight. In the earlier saber-tooths, the front portion of the lower jaw is continued downward into a distinct flange for the protection of the tusk, a feature which the totally unrelated amblypod dinoceros also shows. In later forms, with the enormous extent of the tusks, such a protection becomes impracticable and the flange almost entirely disappears. The chin of the saber-tooths, however, never shows the rounded character of that of the biting cats. Ancestry the cats seem to have had their initial evolution in the great Asiatic adaptive radiation center, whence they spread the world over. It is only in North America, however, that the paleontological series is sufficiently complete to reconstruct a phylogeny such as the above. The Asiatic Eocene ancestry is as yet unknown. Feline Phylum Denictus is the most primitive of cats, but is, nevertheless, despite the fact that Matthew places it in the biting cat phylum, a saber-tooth, as the elongated upper and reduced lower canines, the flattened chin, 
and the protective jaw flange show. Scott looks upon this form as the somewhat modified survivor of the ancestral stage, and representing very nearly the common starting point of both the feline and the macrodont subfamilies. As compared with its contemporary Hoplophonius, the limbs in Denictis are longer and more slender, implying greater cursorial powers. The limbs also retain more primitive features, and the smaller feet with their less developed claws do not have the clutching power of those of Hoplophonius. Altogether, Denictis, while showing certain saber-toothed characteristics, was speedier and less capable of holding a struggling prey while the stabbing tusks could manifest their effectiveness. It was therefore tending toward the adaptations of the modern cats, which is reason for considering it the first recorded member of their line rather than the common ancestor of both phyla. Denictis is confined to the American Oligocene. The genus Nimrivus is still more like the modern cats in the general aspect of the skull and dentition. The canines are more nearly of a size, although the upper ones are still decidedly the larger. The mastoid process is not at all prominent, the lower jaw lacks the flange, and the chin is becoming rounded. The limbs are long and slender as in Denictis, but the foot, instead of being five-toed, has but four, of which the lateral ones are shortened, while all of them bore only partially retractile claws. In general, the limbs are dog-like, resembling those of the living cheetah, Sinelurus, of which we have spoken and which may be a lineal descendant of these so-called false saber-tooths. Nimrivus is found in the Upper Oligocene and Lower Miocene of North America and the Miocene of France. In Pseudelurus, the canines are normal and the jaw has neither flange nor an angulated chin. The skeletal characters and much of the skull are as yet unknown. This cat is found in the mid-Miocene of France and again in the middle and upper Miocene of Nebraska and Colorado. It is an undoubted ancestor of Felis, though it may not have been derived from Denictis at all, but is rather, as Scott believes, a new migrant both into Europe and North America from the Asiatic home of the race. That there were two phyla, Scott does not deny. He does object, however, to Matthew's attempted derivation of biting cats from primitive saber-toothed such as Denictis, claiming that this view runs contrary to the supposed law of the irreversibility of evolution, a rule which many authorities look upon as well established. The theory, Scott continues, postulates a different mode of development from anything that we have so far encountered in the series, previously described and supposes that the upper canine first lost its original form, becoming a thin, elongate and scimitar-like tusk while the lower canine was reduced almost to the proportions of an incisor, and the lower jaw acquired a straight flat chin and inferior flanges for the protection of the tusks. Then, after specialization had advanced so far, it was reversed and the original condition regained. This interesting hypothesis may possibly turn out to be true, though personally I cannot accept it, and should it do so, it would necessitate a thoroughgoing revision of current opinions as to the processes of mammalian development. The law of the irreversibility of evolution applies rather to the impossibility of regaining a lost anatomical structure, not, as Scott would imply, to the reduction of a highly specialized one. And while the parallelism is not exact, the proboscideans to be discussed in the next chapter underwent somewhat the same evolution as that which Matthew postulates for the cats, in that a highly modified and elongate jaw synthesis subsequently shortened and simplified, and the upper tusks, large structures in all known prehistoric elephants, are today becoming vestigial in the existing Indian species, even in the males.
Felis is the final genus of the biting cat phylum and needs no further description than that given above. Geologically, it dates back to the Pliocene and was represented in the North American Pleistocene by a large species, Felis atrox, of a size greater than a lion and ranging over the southern half of the continent. Huge specimens of this species, differing somewhat from the type, have been found in the Rancho La Brea asphalt of Southern California, in association with the great saber-tooth Smilodon californicus. But although the skulls of the latter are numbered by the hundreds, as many as thirty have been found within the space of three or four cubic yards, Daggett. Those of the former are very rare, as though their habitat and habits differed materially, and the lion-like form not being adapted to prey upon the great brutes which were caught in the tar, did not venture within the limits of its fatal grasp. Sabretooth Phylum Turning to the Sabretooth Phylum, there is little doubt that the Oligocene Hoplophonius was the direct ancestor of the Sabretooth line. In this genus, the upper canine was long, thin, curved, and finely serrated along both edges, but the lower canines were hardly larger than the incisors. The skull was longer than in modern cats, and in every way resembled a smaller and more primitive edition of that of Smilodon. The lower jaw was relatively much stouter than in the latter, and the flange was so deep that the tusks were completely protected and could only be used when the mouth was open. Smilodon, on the other hand, could have used the tusks very effectively with the mouth closed. Whether it did or not is a matter of opinion which cannot now be decided. The body and tail of Hoplophonius had more the proportions of a modern leopard, but the limbs were more powerful, although far less so than in Smilodon. The character of the four-limb bones implies great freedom of rotation of the four-paw, showing it to have had a more general use than in modern cats. The feet were small, five-toed, but with fully retractile claws. Thus, Merriam says, the presence of long, knife-like canines is correlated with powerful grasping feet possessing highly developed retractile claws. With his powerful feet, the animal clung to its prey while it struck repeatedly with its thin, sharp sabers. Macarodus is the Miocene to Pleistocene representative of the saber-toothed phylum, known from very fragmentary material in North America, but from practically perfect skulls in the Miocene of France. The skull is like that of Smilodon, but somewhat more primitive, being longer, with a smaller brain case and muscular crests. The mastoid processes for the insertion of the stabbing muscles of the neck were less developed. The jaw, on the contrary, was proportionately heavier than in Smilodon, and the protective flange much larger. It was insufficient, however, fully to protect the canine when the mouth was closed. Macarodus is, in many respects, midway between Hoplophonius and Smilodon, but whether or not any of the American Miocene and Pliocene forms are surely of that genus cannot be decided until skulls are found. The jaws which are known, however, are quite similar. The genus Smilodon terminates the series of saber-toothed cats and has already been characterized in contrast with Felis. It seems to be exclusively New World, the European Pleistocene saber-tooths belonging to the more conservative Macarodus. Smilodon was originally discovered in South America, Pampas Formation, but its presence in North America is abundantly proved by the profusion of its remains at Rancho La Brea. As it is often found in association with ground slots, Smilodon, etc., which are unknown in the Old World, its final specialization over the more conservative Macarodus, its European contemporary, may well have been a special adaptation to destroy and devour the great slots in particular, 
rather than the other pachyderms which form the dietary staple of saber-tooths in general, and the other pachyderms which form the dietary staple of saber-tooths in general. There is preserved in the museum at Buenos Aires a skull of Smilodon neogaeus, casts of which may be seen in many museums, in which one of the tusks is locked fast by its tip between the equivalent canine and incisor of the lower jaw. This has been cited as argument for the belief that these structures had grown so huge as to become an actual menace to the individual, causing in the present instance a case of mechanical lockjaw which was followed by death from starvation. The analogy, although not precise, lies with the deer whose antlers are occasionally locked in combat, resulting in the speedy death of the contestants either from starvation or because their subsequent helplessness renders them an easy prey to human or other enemies. This has been taken as an argument in favour of momentum in variation, Loomis, by which is meant orthogenetic variation, possibly guided in part by natural selection, but which, instead of seizing when the point of greatest usefulness is attained, breaks away from selection control and continues to increase even to the limit of disaster. Merriam speaks of the destructive apparatus of the saber-toothed tiger as one of the most deadly combinations that has been found in any flesh-eating animal but, like the delicate mechanism of the high-power gun, there seem also to have been great possibilities for becoming disabled, and if the long thin sabres were once broken, the sabre-tooths would be less effective than the other large cats. In a large number of specimens found there is evidence of fracture or loss of one or both sabres long before the death of the animal, so that the extreme specialization of this creature may have led to a stage at which accidents occurred so commonly as to destroy the type. Matthew, on the contrary, cannot believe that such a noxious character could be developed to the point of seriously reducing the expectation of life of the individuals in which it was present, much less of being the direct cause of the extinction of a race. He believes that, in Smilodon, the immense development of the canines made them highly efficient weapons for a particular mode of attack, and was an essential element of its success in its especial mode of life, not a hindrance or bar to its survival. As we have seen, the evolution of the biting cat, swift of foot and powerful of jaw, was correlated with that of the thin-skinned cursorial ungulates, their normal prey. With them, these cats spread and waxed strong and powerful, and with their diminution in the new world, the felines diminished. In the old world, on the contrary, both great cats and great game of the cursorial sort are still numerous. The macerodons, on the other hand, increased paripasu with the heavy slow-moving thick-skinned forms and with them they diminished for both the ungulates and the slots and their saber-toothed enemies are extinct in the new world while in the old the great ungulates are rare and so far between that the saber-tooths have entirely disappeared there as well since their day the elephants and rhinos once their stature is attained fear no foe but man although the lions and tigers do assail their young and thus they are held in check it is the old story of high and narrow specialization and the dependence upon a peculiar sort of conditions and of food. Eliminate those conditions or the food, and the very specialization which was once a mark of adaptability now makes the race inadaptable and its doom is sealed. End of chapter 33